You really do look like shit in a ponytail. No. no I'm sorry. Bye, bye, baby. Bye, baby. I don't want to hear it. The Gigi wants Perrette. He's Perrette. Who the hell is Perrette? The bloke with me in prison. He's the governor. Yeah, where's he now? Where's the governor? The desert, right? Go after you. Think he's telling the truth? I don't know. But it's not raining, and he's standing in a puddle. Disgusting. You know, Potato Head, you just fell for the oldest routine in the book. Bad cop? Worst cop. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, listening people. Hello. Hi, Bartek. Hi, Ryan. Oh, okay. You didn't want to let I, me go in and say, how are you? I was really blindsided by that. I really thought you were just going to end on High Bartek. <laughs> okay, end of episode. It was nice doing a recording. End it with High Bartek. How many, how many episodes in a row have we completely messed up? Or, or I completely messed up the intros? Well, I do remember in our very one of our very first episodes, you didn't know the name of the show was Unappreciated Masterpieces and corrected me, calling it Underappreciated Masterpieces, and I had to correct you in return. Yeah, saying, yeah. Yeah. No, 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 no. Kangaroo Jack is an unappreciated masterpiece. Underappreciated, yeah. We've done two episodes, Bartek. Uh, I remember I was like half gaslighting you and I felt bad. <laughs> yeah, half. So we are spin Polish, Bartek. Why is that? What's that about? We are called Spit and Polish, likingly because we are always spitting and we both happen to be Polish, Ryan. Oh, tell me a Polish fact. Doesn't Pol- have to be a fun one, just a fact. Polish fact, only two colors on the flag. What ones? White and, um, mm-hmm. I'll get back to you on that one. I was going to ask you a further question if you gave me the color and I was going to ask you. It's the what... same colors of the Japanese flag. Oh, okay. But what order are the colors in? White on top, red on bottom. Is white a color? Yeah. I don't think so. It's not in the Roy G. Biv. Ryan, we got a <laughs> Ryan, we got a computer in front of us. Open up Microsoft Paint. Look at the <laughs> look at the default colors and tell me what's in the but corner. Bartek, Bartek, we learned this already. Roy G. Biv mm-hmm. is what colors are red, orange, yellow, green, blue, indigo, violet. There is no white there or black. So Well Ryan, Roy G. I, Biv. I heard that there are two spectrums of colours. There's light and paints. Ah, there you go. So we're the painting podcast in which we talk <laughs> about podcasts, specifically painting styles. Um what's a famous Polish artist? Are there any? I know Polish like figures, but not artists. Like Copernicus was a navigator, but not like an artist. Yeah, Mikołaj Kopernik was his name. Yeah, the, the Catholic Church apologized to him a little while back for the crimes they committed against his, <laughs> against his genius. Yes, I don't think the Polish are flat earthers. You you could say your mum. My mum? Yeah, she's an artist. She made you. Uh, she posts photos on her Facebook. That's photography's on art. <laughs> I gave you a compliment saying you're a piece of art, and you're like, yeah, my mum makes my mum takes photos. <laughs> so I was like, we're doing Pictures Power, the show in which we talk about a movie that's come recommended. Our listening people recommended this. A fellow podcaster recommended this. Uh, Paul from the Countdown podcast, where they count down movies and television shows, way back in the day, recommended Tango and Cash. I was constantly asking him, you got to come on for this. But you know what it's like in the life of a podcaster? Too busy podcasting to podcast. A lot of numbers to count, I assume. And since our list is getting short and our patience is thin, we had to do Tango and Cash, the recommendation from Paul. So we're doing Tango and Cash, Bartek. What is the plot of this movie before we say, if you haven't seen it, watch it, because we're going to spoil it. Just tell the plot. From your recollection. 
the plot it's pretty deep yes the plot of this film first of all the genre is that it's a buddy cop movie between two... your favorite yes from two two buddies that are cops uh well they're not buddies Yes, but as with a lot of buddy films and buddy stories, they become buddies, or at least have a sort of repertoire between the two of them. Rapport, I mean. Sorry, I'm thinking of Garth <laughs> Marenghi's Dark Place, where it's like, you and he were buddies. Buddies, weren't you? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so this is a buddy film, where whether they get along or not at the beginning, doesn't matter, it's a buddy film. <laughs> and... Uh, the plot of this one is that these two police officers, they're the two best police officers in wherever they're working. The I think it was the West Coast. Yeah. Um, wherever, Be- where yeah, wherever Beverly Hills is, <laughs> I think that's actually East Coast. Anyway, uh, they. <laughs> What's wrong, Ryan? <laughs> You're the best. Keep going. <laughs> that's why I'm the co-host. <laughs> from the West Side, and I'm from the East Side. I think you know what I think Beverly Hills might be the east, but I'm I'm gonna dig myself out of this by you know what it is. It. It's in the north, in the northern hemisphere. We're in the southern, so we don't have to care. Yeah, we don't. We we're down under. We're upside down. Our toilets go a different way. Apparently, <laughs> mine, mine goes top to bottom, so I don't know how that works. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> the plot of Tango and Cash is that these two great police officers are framed for a crime they did not commit. Uh, they get sent to prison. They have to break out. And they have to clear their names uh, <laughs> any way they can. So if you have not seen Tanko Cash and you are interested by that amazing plot, watch it. Because we're going to spoil it, I guess. We're going to get into the minutia of Stallone and Russell. And Terry Hatch is here too, I guess. I don't know. She's in the movie as well for a little bit. Does she wear pants sometimes? Maybe not. Who knows? you got to watch the movie. This is a 1980s copper buddy film, Bartek. What is your relationship with Tango and Cash? And what's your relationship with this type of action buddy cop 80s thing? Um, Tango and Cash, I'd never seen it before, but I'd heard of it. I knew that it was an iconic 80s film. Uh, infamous. Infamous. Yes. Um, I, I just basically knew that it was well known and it's, you know... A sort of iconic staple of 80s type of cinema. Mm. Um, didn't know if it was early, mid, this is late, it's 1989. Yeah, so it has no excuses. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and I knew that, yeah, it was a buddy film, but I didn't really know much beyond that other than, oh, it's a really well-known one. Um, mm. And buddy films in general, you know, they're fun. You have a lot of films, not necessarily just from the 80s, where you have two lead characters all the way from, like, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid to that movie from a few years ago. I think it's called The Nice Guys. Yes, yes. Yeah. Written by Shane Black, who did uh, Lethal Weapon. Mm. This movie, Tango and Cash, is not Lethal Weapon. It's not trying to be Lethal Weapon. It's not like it got actors who tried to be in Lethal, Lethal Weapon and put them in this movie. Don't even mention Lethal Weapon. This is Tango and Cash hasn't even heard of Lethal Weapon before. The, the diff- See, it's so different. You know, neither of them are old or black, so that's how you know they're not the same. Yeah, this one's about dancing and money. There's no Joe Pesci character to come in in the sequel to Tango and Cash because they never got a sequel, but, you know, (laughs) don't even mention Lethal Weapon, okay? I won't. I haven't even seen Lethal Weapon. There you go. See, Bartek can't even bring it up because he doesn't even know it exists. He's more of a Tango and Cash purist. Yes, absolutely, as of yesterday. Yeah, and you're never going to watch Lethal Weapon. <laughs> no. <laughs> Unless someone recommends it for the listening people's choice to expand our list. No, we're going to do Loaded Weapon, the comedy spoof with uh, uh, um, 
Samuel L. Jackson, Whoopi Goldberg, Tim Curry, and uh, the the other Sheen brother, the one that isn't Charlie, uh, Emilio Emilio Estevez. Estevez. Yes, he plays he plays the Mel Gibson role. Is it any good? Oh, it, it's a great, it's a great, it's great. I love it. Tim Curry's the villain. <laughs> okay, and he um, this is my miniature review of Loaded Weapon. In the very opening scene with him, he kills Whoopi Goldberg, and the whole joke is she keeps not dying. Like she's like, oh wait, what? One more thing. She just keeps going on and on with details. She's Rasputin. But he comes in. Tim Curry's got a beard in this movie. One of the few times you can recollect him with a beard. And he comes in, and his whole thing is he's in disguises all the time. And the first one he has is he's in a, a wilderness girl outfit. So he's got little pigtails and his little, you know, like little badges. And he's a German in the movie or a Russian, I can't remember. And he's... And it's Tim Curry in in this outfit, and you get like a bug-eyed, fish-eyed lens shot of them looking through like a peephole, and he's knocking on the door, and he's just like, "Wilderness girls," and it's Tim Curry doing it in Tim Curry gloriousness. That's how the movie starts, and it just goes from there. That sounds fun. It's 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 pretty amazing. John Lovitz is in the movie as their Joe Pesci character, like the annoying little guy that refuses to go away. Mm-hmm. See, why are we doing that? You know, so Tango and Cash is a movie you have not seen, but have heard things about. Mm-hmm. What were the things that you had heard about it? Was it just, it's one of those movies? Or did you hear it in a positive way, in a negative way, anything like that? Or even who's in it? It was really just that general idea of like, oh, it's an action movie from the 80s, so it's probably going to be, you know, uh, more in the style of films from the 80s. So schlocky. (laughs) Schlocky, yeah. More popcorn filmy. Uh, My history with Tango and Cash is I've never watched all of it. Um, My mum, I've mentioned this on the pod many times, is a huge Kurt Russell fan, but as I talked to her before watching this episode, she said to me, Ryan, just because I love Kurt Russell doesn't mean I'm going to watch every piece of shit movie he makes, including Tango and Cash. (laughs) She's not a fan of Tango and Cash, so every time it would come on, I'd see the first maybe 15 minutes of it, and then we'll change to something else, because my mum's just like, I'm not watching Kurt sell out. And just do shit. Um, Stallone, obviously, I grew up with Stallone, as did you. you. You're a little bit more into his stuff than I. Like, you've you've experienced all of the Rocky movies. I've only experienced... I can't even remember if I've experienced them all. Um, we like Stallone. We've mentioned this on the podcast. Uh, this is when his career was dying. Mm-hmm. Uh, when he was trying anything. So this is him trying to be like, yeah, I'm going to do one of those lethal weapon type movies. And every now and then I'll make fun of my own career. Because isn't that, isn't that great? I have a sense of irony. <laughs> uh, and then he'll be like, and then I'll do Oscar, a screwball comedy. you know, <laughs> And save his career, yes. And then, and then I'll do uh, throw, uh, you know, stop on my mum will shoot. you know, And it goes on and on. I never watched this movie fully. Um, first time doing it for the, uh, for this, and it was an experience. It was exactly how I remembered it. Um, 1980s galore, one-liners all the time, no deep characterization. Um, none of it makes any sense. Um, it's very generic. Uh, and I knew that. Like the legacy of Tango and Cash in my world is, it's stupid. Um, that's how I know it. My parents are like, it's stupid. And I think most people agree out of this era, this is one of the stupid ones of these action movies with the muscly machismo lead mm-hmm. and the buddy cop thing. And it's just like, yep, that's, that's one of the stupid ones. Tango and cash. 
Having now watched it, I, I can proudly say that I'm so, so sorry to Samurai Cop. Um, because over the years I've said that Samurai Cop was stupid, but, uh, watching this movie, I, I think that Samurai Cop really nailed this genre better than this movie did. <laughs> this movie even has someone from Samurai Cop in it. Yeah, who? Uh, who do you think? <laughs> do you not know? He's it's... the bad guy in Samurai Cop, the guy with the big chin. Imagine him with a beard in Samurai Cop. That's him, the guy who, um, yeah, I think I remember now. Cuts someone's head off in a in a hospital, and he emerges from like the little trolley that they have that's filled with dirty clothes, and he yeah, comes in with a samurai sword. It's been a few years, but I think I remember that. Um, I think you owe an apology to Samurai Cop because when we watched it, you were like, "This music is absurd. This isn't real." And then you watch Tango and Cash, and you're like, "Oh no, Samurai Cop's music was actually pretty tame for these '80s <laughs> movies." So give give Samurai Cop a quick apology. Samurai Cop, I don't remember what I said, but I apologize for it. <laughs> Say it sincerely, with a little bit of a tear in your eye. Samurai Cop, you... You, uh... You use that drama degree. <laughs> <laughs> What's my action? <laughs> your, your action is sadness. My, oh, my verb is sadness. I will sadness this. <laughs> I so, so sincerely apologize, Samurai Cop. I, I'm... You were the love of my life, and I hit you. Samurai Cop, you you were truly amazing. You taught me that katana means Japanese sword in Japanese, and that's pretty good. Look, Samurai Cop, I always liked the lion. So, what did you think of this movie? It was, as you said, generic. It was of that style, but it was relatively enjoyable. It was... <laughs> What was so enjoyable about it to you? I don't know. It was just like a popcorn film, just <laughs> cheap action, and it all well up up to a point. It was it was fine. I thought up to a point. What point? And did it change from being good to great or fine to bad? Uh probably fine to bad. What point? The the climax when they're at the quarry. I reckon. Oh, why? They got that tr- RV from the... Uh, they got the truck? They got I, no- I noticed. From the guy! You know, they set it up because Kurt Russell had a gun in his boot at the beginning. And then they never mentioned why he had that like that until the very end. <laughs> so it's a goal, it's a setup and a payoff. Mm. Chekhov's Kurt Russell's shoe gun, mm. as they say. You know what they say. Set up that Kurt Russell has a shoe gun in the first act and pay it off with... A- Armored RV in the third. I didn't even remember the shoe gun. <laughs> in the very beginning, Kurt Russell gets home invaded, right? He's in the mirror looking at himself and he gets like shot 15 times in the chest and lives. Yeah. And he's like hanging out the window about to die, right? Mm-hmm. And then the, the the Asian guy comes up to him to be like, ha And Kurt Russell lifts up his foot and we see the bottom of his boot and a hole blows out of the heel of his boot and it shoots the guy out of the window of the opposite window and he falls onto a car and then Kurt Russell sprints and runs out and you get that insane chase sequence. Yeah. And it was like, oh, he just has a gun in his boot? Okay. And then the movie doesn't speak about it ever again until the very end when you meet the guy with the magnifying glass in front of his face 
And he's just like, you know me, Kurt. I'm always wanting to make weapons for you, like your gun boot. And you're like, oh, yeah, they brought that back. Yeah, Too so bad that Kurt never had any other gadgets throughout the movie because they stripped him of all of his gadgets because mm. he was in prison. <laughs> Very smart stuff. So you did not like the third act where it went to Explosion Town. Yeah, pretty Where much... they went to the fireworks factory. <laughs> pretty much that whole time when they were in the car, yeah, I just everything was glazing over. I was glazing over it all. That was me for the whole movie. Mm. The only enjoyment I got out of this, I did not hate this movie, but I was reminded, oh, that's right. I don't love action movies a lot. Mm. There has to be something to them that really draws me in. I remember when we discussed uh, Rumble in the Bronx... Even that movie glazed over for me after a certain point, but the pure artistry of Jackie Chan's choreography and fighting was drawing me into that. But, you know, even then... Yeah, I was those still... were the memorable parts of that. But film. even then, I'm still, like, glazing over. It's like, oh, okay, is this all there is? I like the John Wick movies, but even then, there's something more to them. There's this interesting world in the John Wick movies. Mm. And, you know, Predator, there's more... There's not... You know, Predator, it's about the cat and mouse game between the Predator and these, you know, commando guys. And it... this is just, like, there's no story... It is just, Kurt, watch Kurt Russell and Sylvester Stallone. This is what the movie is. We got Kurt Russell, here's a name. We got Sylvester Stallone, here's a name. They both have personalities that we all know. And that will sell the movie. Mm-hmm. The sad thing is, though, neither one of them backs down on what their brand is. So it's it's like oil and water. They bounce off of each other. It just doesn't gel together for me. Like... In Lethal Weapon, Danny Glover is playing a character. He's this old guy who's like, I'm tired, I don't want to be here. Oh, and then you got this young guy, Mel Gibson, he's crazy. Mel Gibson's fucking insane. In this, both Kurt Russell and Sylvester Stallone are playing themselves, in which I'm the... I'm the handsome buff action guy who's smart and clever and everything I say is crazy and funny and I'm crazy and you're crazy. I'm the sensible one. No, you're the sensible. And it, the way they're introduced is what they are. And there's no difference between them, especially after a certain point when they go to prison and they strip Stallone of his glasses. So yeah. the illusion that he's the sensible one is gone. Yeah, and it's, that a whole... liter- it's literally an illusion that his glasses, which are Sylvester Stallone's real life glasses, are an illusion that he's supposed to be the straight laced one out of the two of them because he never acts like that again in the movie. And he doesn't even act like it in the first place. The very first <laughs> scene he has with the truck and all that is just as crazy as Kurt Russell. There's no like juxtaposition in which you see Sylvester Stallone's like tactically organizing, like you go here and I go here and we've got to get this guy and we do it by the books and da 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 da. You know, they're both mm. insane Hollywood maverick cops. And they're both just teamed up together and they both don't like each other because they're the same character and it's kind of boring. It is bizarre because early on, the illusion was working on me. You know, they had all these visual things of like, oh, their characters, they look different. The places they work are different. But then they choose to strip them of those things and it's all laid bare. Yeah. And it makes you realize, oh, there was no difference in the first place. Really? I was actually kind of surprised that the film went so quickly and so plainly with the whole prison plot of stripping them of their things because 
the film was establishing all of that. I thought it was going to, you know, play up to all of that throughout. Yeah, but no, they're going to break out of prison real quick so that they can see Terry Hatcher do a little dance. <laughs> and so Kurt Russell could be a drag. What a scene. What a scene. But I did not love this movie. What kept me going, what made my eyes go out of the glaze, was the sheer whiplash effect I had at noticing, oh, they got that character actor in this movie? Whoa, Clint Howard's in the movie? Hmm. And that was what kept me going, was which weird actor are they putting in here? And then also the journey of, are they going to utilize them? Oh, no, they're not. One scene wonder. No, 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 not even one scene wonder. Are they going to get these actors who are great character actors to do the things that you want them to do as character actors? Oh, they're not? Oh, then what was the point? So, Clint Howard's probably the one that they use the best. Clint Howard being slinky in the mm-hmm. movie. Yep. We've seen Clint Howard on a, on a few things, I'm pretty sure, on the podcast. I would, be, I would be shocked if he's never appeared in any episode we've done. <laughs> and I'm probably just forgetting. But, uh... He's always creepy and weird, and you put him in things to be creepy and weird, and, 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 it's, and it's, a, it's a success. But then they have so many other character actors in here, and they don't do anything with them. Like, my biggest offend, offended one was James Hong as uh, the Asian crime boss out of the three crime bosses. Yeah. You've seen him. I'm sure I have. He's in everything. Hmm. Everything. And he's always very funny. Always, always very, very funny. And they don't use him to be funny in this. So it's like, okay, I've seen him be intimidating in movies too. Like, he's in Big Trouble in Little China. Uh, I can't remember if you've seen that, but he's the bad guy in that movie. He's funny. He's creepy, though. And then in this, he's just... Why did they hire him? They could have hired literally any actor to be Asian businessman in suit who doesn't say any lines, really. Was he in any action scene in this? He was film? in the final scene where he got. Sh- <laughs> they he- shoot him through the glass door. He doesn't even get to shoot off around right. near the end of the movie. And then the other guy, who's also a character actor, who's in Star Trek, oddly enough, um, he has more of a shootout with them where he shoots Kurt Russell mm. when he's like, I've been laid on the ground and I'm dead. Um. So that's what kept me going is, oh, this character actor's in the movie. Are they going to use them the way that you want to see these actors used? Maybe they will. Maybe they won't. <laughs> and that's what kept me entertained. What kept you entertained in this movie? You seem far more positive on it. You're like, it's it's blockbustery, fun, da-da-da. I don't see you as a particular enjoyer of that type of thing. Whenever you've talked about these type it's, of movies, you seem to roll your eyes more so than me. It's not so much an enjoyable thing, more of like a kind of neutral thing. Of like, oh yeah, this is working, but it's not really my thing. I wouldn't watch it again, that kind of mm, thing. Mm. Nothing about it seemed like too awful. Like, oh my God, what the fuck is this? Like, it's it wasn't great, but I could watch it just fine until, yeah, like that last scene with the car and... Every time it cut to Jack Palance during that sequence, and it was just him, like, oh, here's his three second reaction to this, and his mice, yeah, and his and his mice throughout the film, yeah, um, and just every time that happened, I was just picturing in my head, like, oh yeah, he's sitting in the recording room, like, all right, do a reaction now, okay, now do another reaction, now do another reaction. It just like broke this illusion that he's a character in the same world as Tango and Cash, and as as a lot of the Things talking about this film online mm. point out Jack Palance did not really enjoy doing this film because he didn't get to interact with 
either the main of characters them. at all. No. He was just in his own separate world every time we saw him in this film. And it was disappointing because the other actors he's working with are great actors, but they're not allowed to act. Mm. They have to react to him being this crazy guy and them just standing there with their hands on their hips going, we just want to kill him, boss. Yeah, every time. Why I... did you hire these great actors who at the time were great character actors? You don't hire these guys who are unique just to... They're just faceless guys. You got guys with faces that people like us recognize and know and are talented, and you've hired them to be just anyone. I seriously don't even really remember what happened to those other two guys. Yeah, they got they just got shot in yeah. the little office. <laughs> I, I, so, I believe you. Lopez being the other guy, um, he's played by an actor who's in Star Trek Deep Space Nine. Mm. He plays the villain in that series, Gull Dukat, and he's like a in full prosthetics, he's a Cardassian. And it's like it's so bizarre to me to see him in real form. Like I'm used to him in makeup, heavy makeup. And it's bizarre even more so to see them see him in a movie and in a show and they don't let him talk really and they don't let him do any acting because his whole thing is he has this, this rich smooth voice that is very domineering and commanding and in in deep space nine he's like this smooth talking villain who's like a literal fascist who's like responsible for death camps but he can just talk and you're like huh Maybe he's got a point. Maybe maybe he tried to do his best. Because that actor's fucking great. Here he is in this movie, and you're like, when did he die? You have to assume he died. <laughs> here's one. Here's one that bugged me. There's this whole sequence in court where mm-hmm. Kurt Russell and, and, and Stallone, I'm not going to call them Tango and Cash, they weren't characters. So, so Russell and Stallone are looking at each one of the people using evidence against them, and they're like, ooh, we're going to get this guy. We're going to get this guy. And they do. They get every single one of them, except for one. If I'm mis- if, correct, me if I'm mistaken. Mm-hmm. You have uh, the cop, the head cop FBI guy. He's like, "Yeah, I walked in and they did this thing." And then uh, I think it's Kurt Russell or Stallone. I can't remember. Come and get him, and he in his kitchen. Yeah. And yeah. then he's he explodes. I don't remember what the explanation for him exploding was. He just ran into another room and it exploded. I don't know what happened. Yeah, that's right. That did happen. Why did that happen? I can't remember. Then you had oh yeah, and Kurt Russell then went after the nerdy little accountant guy who did the yeah the Weasley wire the, the voice editor guy yeah the voice guy who's a great character actor in his own right M- Michael Jeter uh, or Jeter I can't remember. He was in Green Mile and, and a ton of things, and he was a great actor. He was used appropriately here because he would play nebbish little weird characters, so he was appropriately used. But then they had, and you had a whole scene beforehand of this fat, weird, balding guy mm. in court who was also testifying because you saw him early in the movie hand off the, the recording to the pony-haired guy. You remember this whole sequence? Yes. They never got him. I don't remember them ever getting him. To be, I, to be I, honest, I kind of forgot about him. The, yeah. the main one that I remembered was the Weasley guy, just because he had that look, and when he came back, he still looked the same. That that fat, balding guy, he's an iconic character actor, and they almost used him to his potential. He has probably one of the most famous Arnold Schwarzenegger scenes in Total Recall, in which in Total Recall, he comes in, the pitch of Total Re- Recall, you know, where it's like, is, is uh, Schwarzenegger actually living this out, or is it in a simulation? 
he comes in this guy as as a psychiatrist who's like i'm in the real world and i'm trying to help you break free come out come out and schwarzenegger figures out he's lying because he sweats because mm. he's nervous i think i remember that yeah great character actor he's in star trek as well and he plays like an annoying and i was like Okay, when's he going to come back? I don't remember him ever coming back. I don't remember them getting him. The fact that I don't remember them getting him says so much about the quality of this movie in which that would have been a so whole was... movie of its own in which we break out of prison, we go after each one of these fuckers that got so us there. Was... there. So you're saying that it was a setup that you were interested to see the payoff of and it didn't happen. And if it did, it was so uninteresting that I cannot recollect it to save my life. <laughs> All the Tango and Cash fans are going to come with... at us with pitchforks. <sighs> What was something you liked about this? What was a scene or moment or character or something? Because I'm being very negative and being like, there's these poor character actors that they waste. And you're like, it was fun, dumb fun. Yeah, um, I guess I kind of enjoyed the prison break scene when they're running out and they have that fight scene. Against Robert Zadar. With the it was that was the guy with the yeah, big chin, right? He's in, yeah, and he's in Samurai Cop. Yeah, that, that, that sequence had, you know, the sort of energy to it and kind of stakes you felt them mm. um yeah and then after that it was kind of followed up with them in the real world just doing either paying off setups as we were just talking about or yeah like did you know terry hatcher was stallone's sister not his lover Ooh. i remember after that first scene with her i i walked away being like did i miss something am i meant to not know who this person is is that his daughter is like what's going on here <laughs> is that his daughter is that his daughter i mean i mean isn't that a fair enough complaint she could be his daughter because like a year or two later marissa tomei's his daughter and fucking oscar <laughs> that's, yes that's she's right. like the same age <laughs> what's to say that it isn't his daughter well, yeah the way they were talking to each other it's like oh is, this, is that his niece or his daughter like he's looking after her I would describe this movie as embarrassing <laughs> a lot of the time. So many embarrassing moments. I had one laugh in the movie. Did you have many laughs? Because this is a comedy. They're always making jokes. There's always comedy set pieces. There's always like crazy shit going on. But did you have a genuine laugh that was supposed to be there? Because I had many that were ironic laughs. But did you have a true unironic, that was a good joke, I had a laugh there? I only had one. I'm not sure if I did. Again, none none of it was like that I didn't laugh and I found it like disgusting. I was just like, oh yeah, there's a quip, but nothing genuine like that. You recognized that oh that was a thing that they said. Yeah, this is this feels like very eighties. I could see people like this. The the only one I had a laugh at, and it's because I'm a Kurt Russell fan. Mm-hmm. And this felt like the only time where it was like Kurt Russell's comedic charm and timing and Kurt Russell-ism was effective. It was in a singular moment in which they're in the backyard after (laughs) Stallone has crash-tackled the chief who was there for some reason and then he leaves very quickly. Um... And she, the the Terry Hatch is complaining about stuff, and Stallone's like, "This is my house." He's like, "It's mine." He's like, "I own it. You you dwell here." And she's like, "I pay rent." And it's like, "You would know that if you read any of the letters I sent you." And then you know they have at it, and, and Kurt Russell just very diligently goes, "Oh well, in his defense, I mean, yeah. we have been in prison. Yeah. He has been in prison. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's been in prison, and that was the best moment. It felt like, oh, that's why you hired Kurt Russell." I wish there was more of that, because Kurt Russell is 
to me, better when he's like that moment where we know him for Snake Plissken, but the thing in, in Snake Plissken is he doesn't talk very much. And every now and then he'll say something, and it's more of a reaction. Mm. Like, you know, the president, like, you know, he has to go find the president, escape from New York, and he'll give a a one-liner of a, a reaction to something being said to him. He's like, oh, Jesus, you know, whatever. And Kurt Russell's really good at that type of thing. But in this, he's trying to be the action lead man who's making the quips. He's better at, as someone who makes the retort back to someone being... Like Bill Murray does in Ghostbusters, right? Bill Murray's really great at that in Ghostbusters, where he's just, like, making quips back to people. Kurt Russell's really charming when he does that. I love him in Overboard. And in Overboard, Goldie Horn's like this crazy character. And he's just like supposed to be like an everyday dude. And he's making comments back to her. I wish there was more of that type of Kurt Russell in this movie. But he's supposed to be the wacky one out of the two of them. Mm -hmm. And Stallone's supposed to be the stick in the mud. So that dynamic doesn't even work. Because if you did have it that way, Kurt Russell would have to be the stick in the mud one. And he would have to be, Stallone would have to be the wacky one, which of course you can't have because Stallone can never play wacky. Yeah. Kurt Russell can, like in stuff like Captain Ron and Big Trouble in Little China. He can do wacky, but again, when he does wacky, it's usually in a reaction to something. Like, one of the joys of Big Trouble in Little China is it fr the movie frames it like he's the main character, but when you actually watch it, he's actually not the main character. The Asian sidekick friend is the main character, but it's kind of framed in a way where you think it's about Kurt Russell, but when you actually watch it, Kurt Russell's he's the dumb sidekick in the movie, reacting to all this crazy... Chinese mythology going on around him and you have a great moment where he's like yeah now I'm going to take the charge and he shoots an Uzi in the air and it makes the roof that he's just shot fall on his head and knock him out and he's knocked out for the final fight <laughs> like that kind of thing is much funnier to me from Kurt Russell than him doing the I'm going to put a grenade in your pants and make you pee yourself <laughs> and I'm like oh go away so I'm trying to be Mel Gibson because that's something Mel Gibson would do in Lethal Weapon I don't believe Kurt Russell in this movie would do that, but you know, then he did, and you have to accept it and move on, or you die. <laughs> um, that was the only laugh I had throughout the whole movie. I cringed out of my soul when Kurt Russell's elaborate plan to escape was to dress up in drag. Well, was, I, I thought that was the girl's plan. I thought it was his plan, because the way it was cut, he was like, huh, that jacket. He said to the guy, that jacket. How big is that? And then it cuts, and she's oh, in the jacket, and it's point. like making the audience think that it would have been him, but then you take off the helmet, it's her, and you're like, huh, and then he's dressed in drag. And he's the kind of character, he's Cash? Yeah. <laughs> Russell's the kind of character where it makes sense for him to do that, but it didn't mean that my eyes didn't roll back into the <laughs> my head and my soul left my body <laughs> when... when the cops are looking directly at him and they know that he's in the strip club and they're looking directly at him and they don't recognize it's Kurt Russell. It's Kurt Russell. Yeah, they pay too much attention to that character for the disguise to really believably work. Yeah. Yeah, like Kurt Russell needed one of those, uh, I don't know what they're called, but like one of those kind of meshy things that you can put over your face, like, like women look little veils or whatever. Uh, like from... Like the 1930s. <laughs> you know, like that's what he needed. But, like in, there was a bit in Thelma and Louise where some of them wore that, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, it's Tango and Cash. I can't believe we're talking about Tango and fucking Cash, you know? <laughs> 
would you say this is an unappreciated masterpiece? I think it has a cult following, so probably not. <laughs> oh, poor Tango and Cash. Its cult following is very small <laughs> and very dumb, but it's there. Well, according to someone, it's this is a film for people that are illiterate. What action scene did you enjoy? Because that's what these movies exist for. If not the comedy, which you did get, you got no laughs out of. Mm. The action. What was one you enjoyed? What was one that made your eyes not glaze over into the back of your head? I mean, was there any? I mean, the only one that really I glazed over was that final one. I guess maybe. And this is Catch's first scene, but when he was in the car park uh, on the ground one. That was mine too. I guess the dark driving scenes. That was my favourite, the opening, like, everything with Cash, like, getting shot through the mirror and mm. going down and jumping, because it, it was so absurd. Yeah. And it made me think of Samurai Cop, where you would have the exact same thing in Samurai Cop, except for every person he runs past would say, hey, wait a minute, in the same voice. <laughs> yeah, that's right. In the same voice. <laughs> that would be the only difference. Okay, now I'm remembering Samurai Cop. Hey, wait a minute. <laughs> <laughs> that was a thing. Yeah, that was a scene in which Samurai Cop was chasing Robert Zadar out of the hospital because Robert Zadar just murdered someone with a samurai sword. <laughs> with a katana, which means Japanese sword in Japanese. Mm. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to tell these sons of bitches. Um... I enjoyed that because it was it was crazy, and then the the scene ended terribly. Like Kurt Russell gave like a shitty one liner. Welcome to America. Yeah, welcome guy. to America, and you're like, <sighs> and tumbleweeds were rolling in my house when that <laughs> happened. It was like deathly silent. Was it a a genuine American tumbleweed? Of course, I was welcomed to America by <laughs> American ambassador Kurt Russell. <laughs> Who worked with Elvis when he was a kid and then grew up to be Elvis in a movie. Mm-hmm. Elvis Presley, the movie, directed by John Carpenter. And then he got to play an Elvis impersonator in 3,000 Miles to Graceland, a far superior movie to what Tango and Cash is. <laughs> Where the bad guy's Kevin Costner, who's, who's an evil Elvis impersonator. That's the movie, by the way, we could have watched. What's it called again? 3,000 Miles to Graceland. Okay. Where, like, the thing is, Kevin Costner thinks that he's genuinely the son of Elvis. Like, that's what makes him crazy. Because the state won't do the DNA tests to prove that he's the real son of Elvis. And he's like, I am. And Kurt Russell's just like, I'm a dude. <laughs> you know how they set up that Kurt Russell had a bulletproof vest in the beginning? Like, he got shot, and then he took off his vest in the elevator, and he's got bruises and all that. The word set up is... And and that, that's it. what I was going to say. Why did they do that if they were never going to pay it off in any way? Why would you introduce that one of the characters always has a bulletproof vest on all the time, and then never have them wear a bulletproof vest ever again after the scene you introduced that they do do that all the time? Well, the, the, the awkward thing there is... I don't think that showing that bulletproof vest was a setup. I think that was an explanation for what we saw in the previous scene. Because as you said, when he got shot ludicrously and survived, it was weird. And then in the next scene, you find out, oh, he was wearing a bulletproof vest. And as you say, he doesn't wear the bulletproof vest throughout the rest of the film. Therefore, that wasn't a setup. That was a quote-unquote payoff or explanation. (laughs) 
this movie's shit with the pacing and timing because it takes so long to get to payoffs to the point at which you didn't even realize there was a setup to it. Like, the whole entire thing I was telling you about, like, the RV being a payoff to his shoe gun. You forget that there's a shoe gun because it took so long. Like, could you imagine? Could you imagine in James Bond, right? In the opening scene, James Bond is driving his car, right? He's driving, driving. And you don't know anything about James Bond. This is the first time you've ever met him. And they're doing it, like, really grounded. And he's, like, driving. Oh, no. My tire's gone out, right? He's driving anyway. And then he presses a button that you've never seen before. And the machine guns come out of the car. And they just start shooting the bad guy. And then a jetpack shoots out of the car before it explodes. And you're like, whoa, whoa, what? And then he just says... Like, in an elevator, he's just like, good, good that I had that jetpack in the car and those machine guns. And then, in the very last minute of the movie, you meet Q. And he's like, oh, good that you use that jetpack at the beginning of the movie. And you're like, what the fuck? <laughs> oh, he has a guy that makes these? I guess so. Like, far. At least with James Bond, you could understand because he's a super secret agent. He's not just a normal cop who has a shoe gun. You know? Like, fuck. This movie's lame with pacing. Because it's like... Okay, this is going to be a movie in which these two cops cops get framed for something they didn't do. And then the whole movie is going to be in them in prison, right? And then maybe they break out near the end and prove that they're right. But no, 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 they're in prison for like 10 minutes. And then they're out. Yeah, yeah, just like two, three scenes. <laughs> and they don't suffer really anything in prison. Like they yeah, have like and, one action-y sequence and, and then that's going to Yeah, and for as tough as their situation is, you know, cops are after them, they still do have some friends in high places that make their yeah. plot flow a lot easier for them. It's no story of Ricky. Yeah. <laughs> See, that's a prison movie. Yeah. About, and they break out at the very end, right? He punches the wall and it falls over. <laughs> That's well, yes, very, he, and, then, he, and, then, and then the movie ends. He finished the mission, so now he has to leave. So he punches <laughs> the wall. Fuck this movie, sucked <laughs> ass. I I think I hated this movie. Honestly, the more I'm talking about, it, I realize I don't have any positives. Okay, let's talk about Stallone. Okay, was he good in this? Because we've been very nice to Stallone. We've been good to him. We've had him on a few things, right? Mm-hmm. And we've been very nice. We said, hey, you know, he's he's a limited actor, but they use him well. well we've been nice. Mm-hmm. This is the first time I'm like, oh, so this is the shitty Stallone that people talk about, right? Because we've been doing good Stallone stuff, or at least entertaining. To me, I'm like, is this the first shitty Stallone that we've done? But I wanted to hear your opinion. You're more of a Stallone expert than I am. Yeah, uh, surprisingly. Um... Again, the beginning of the film when we were under that illusion, you know, he had the the costume and everything was being set up, even though it was obviously this, like, okay, this guy's going to be a bit more of the rich guy who is a cop because he wants the thrill of being a cop rather than, you Mm. know, any sort of duty or, like, actually need to earn a paycheck. We've got that, but then we know that this is, like, an 80s action film, so it's going to be more focused on the actual action-y stuff. That stuff's not really going to matter. But then when they squander all of that and he just ends up being this generic action guy, it does sort of... I think it does affect the performance in a way. He's a man filled with ego in this, right? In the other movies we've watched of his, like, the first Rambo, it was like a passion project of his, right? He was really trying to get this made. Mm. He struggled. They had to cut the movie. It was like a, it was a turmoil getting it made. But it was like, 
he was still new on the scene relatively, right? Here's him doing Rambo. Okay, yeah. And then we did Oscar. Yes? Mm. Can't remember. Have we ever... We've had other Stallones? Those are the main two that I can think of. Oscar's when his career was in the toilet, and he's trying to do anything to get by. I remember when you picked Oscar, you said that you were... you wanted to pick that one because it was less known than Stop When All My Mumble Shoots. Yeah, and it was like his career's in the toilet, he's trying to do comedies now, and he's not succeeding. This is like in that pocket where his career's on the out, but I don't think he knows it. Mm. So he's like, I'm, I'm fucking top shit. You see it in the Rambo, I mean, uh, in the Rocky movies, how his ego takes over the artistic endeavours. When the first Rocky movie, it's like, it feels like a real thing. But then you get to Rocky Five. Or Rocky Four, whichever one it is where he takes on Russia. Four, yeah. And you're like, this is as an egomaniac who's like <laughs> unstoppable. And then you get to Rocky Balboa where he's been like truly humbled as a person and Rocky's a human again. Yeah, I know. When I was reading the trivia for this film and all the behind the scenes stuff, you know, trivia... A lot of it is Stallone demanded this. Stallone got this person fired <laughs> because they didn't want to give him this. And it rung, yeah, it kind of rung some bells. I'm like, oh yeah, haven't we read trivia kind of like this where the lead actor, Stallone, mm. was in charge of a lot more than we would assume a lead actor would be? Stallone is a businessman, for sure. He's produced a lot, written. He understands the biz. But because he understands the biz does not mean that he is fully aware of the impact of his ego and meddling. Because in this movie, if he took his foot out of his ass and stopped trying to be Stallone for one fucking second and actually tried to be the character, this could have been a far more entertaining movie. Because, like I said, there's no difference between Kurt Russell and Stallone. Because they're just... They're not acting. They're just being themselves in a way like Stallone's coming in and he's like I want to do this I want to do this I want to be lit this way I want to be favored I want to be put in a favorable light like this I want to be the smart one but I also want to be the funny one I also want to be the sexy one and Kurt Russell's here too and it feels like I don't know if Kurt Russell has that much of an ego in comparison. I've never read anything about him having an ego like this. He seems like a pretty chill dude and I can easily imagine that Kurt Russell just kind of went with the flow Hmm. Oh, Stallone wants it like this? Sure, I'll do it like that. Because there's only like one or two moments where it feels like Kurt Russell's natural... Like, the thing you get Kurt Russell for shines through. He doesn't feel like he's being the thing that you want Kurt Russell to be in this movie. He feels like he could be any generic action guy in a movie. He has some moments where he brings his Kurt Russell charm to it, but they're just not enough. And Stallone is just like a fucking charisma vacuum in this. I did not find him charming. I did not find him entertaining. I found him to be an unfunny black hole of a man. And every time it circled around him, I felt like I was the turd going down the bowl. Like, honestly. Terry Hatcher. She's great in this. She gets fucking nothing to do. And her character's shit. But she's naturally charming. Naturally funny. I kind of wish that she was in the movie more, and I kind of wish that her character wasn't just the girl that Kurt Russell can win. Yeah, in the climax, she becomes damsel in distress. Yeah, she becomes damsel in distress, but also, literally, it's just like, uh, 
Kurt Russell's talking about her in front of her, and I was expecting that moment, dumbass me, I was expecting that moment where Kurt Russell's just like, yeah, and now I can date your sister, right? And she's sitting there in the middle, and I was waiting for her to do the thing, in which she's like, well, actually, maybe I decide if I want to date you. But no, it's between, she just smiles and nods, and Stallone and and Kurt Russell (laughs) high-five, and then the movie ends. I was like, oh, that's right. That's Freeze right. High five. That's right. The 80s was a terrible time to be a woman, huh? <laughs> You're like, this is. Uh... <laughs> We're going to talk about Jack Palance, I guess, or Jack Palance. I've heard it pronounced both ways. I don't care. How embarrassing. What was his character even about? What was his problem? Why didn't he just kill them? What was his fucking... They didn't even know who he was. That was something that shocked me. At the end, they're like, who's this guy? And I'm like, you fucking good question, actually. I've been spending a lot of scenes with him. I don't know jack yeah. shit about him. Yeah, I remember the, the very first scene of the movie where where Tango Sylvester Stallone is... <laughs> the crime scene he drives past. <laughs> it's exactly like Hot Fuzz. Where, where Timothy Dalton drives past a crime scene and he's commenting about, like, oh, two lovers died. And Simon Pegg's like, whoa, 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 whoa. Are you driving past an active crime scene right now? And he's like, well, I actually have an excuse for this. <laughs> but yeah, the, <laughs> the, the whole action of the scene ends and his limo just drives by and he's like, I was the villain behind this and I've got a plan for the future. And right there, just set this thing of like, Oh yeah, this is gonna be this kind of like cheesy, simple film where stuff like this happens. There was a great moment in the prison when he revealed himself, but not actually. He was still in the shadows, and he somehow escaped because he went behind some steam, which was a nice visual way of showing that he got away from the prison. That I thought he ran, but evidently not. See, when that happened, I was like, "Well, that can't be Jack Palance. Why would he be at the prison?" <laughs> but he was. But apparently, it was. My favorite thing was he kept himself in shadows, but also declared that he was announcing himself to them for the first, like, "I'm showing off who I am," and but he doesn't. And then at the end, when they see him, they don't know who he is. So it makes no difference if he showed his face or not, because they don't know who the fuck he is. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? There's this great moment in The Flash, the animated series, mm-hmm. where um, Lex Luthor swaps bodies with Barry Allen. And he's like, yes, finally I can learn the identity of The Flash. And he takes off the, the cowl, and he looks in the mirror, and he looks very sternly and he says, I have absolutely no idea who this man is. <laughs> and he's like, that's like, great. And I was waiting for that kind of moment where it's like, and it's me, Jack, Jack Palance or Jack Palance. And they both go like, I, I, <laughs> like, I don't know. I don't know who this is. Because mm. at the end, they reveal they don't know. What was with him, Jack? He kept playing with mice. Could you tell me what that was about? Was that just an actor thing where it's like, we've got to show his medicine, make him let mice lick his face while he laughs? What was that? <laughs> when the... Okay, so when the mice were established, I thought for sure it was going to be a thing of like, oh, something's going to happen to the mice. He's going to kill the mice. Like, because when he's first talking about the mice, he's equating the mice to our main characters, Tango and Cash, who he... Wants to lick his he... face? <laughs> Who he wants to kill. He he says they're not going to make it out of prison in 18 months because they'll be dead by then. So it's like, oh, well, what's going to happen to these mice who you are holding? That You have them in the palm of your hands almost like symbolically like, you know, and I'm in charge. he puts them in the maze. Puts them in the maze, calls them cute. That scene ends. But then throughout the rest of the film... He's just playing with them. They're just cute pet mice that he likes and nothing <laughs> bad happens to them. And if you keep following the analogy that he's making, it's like, does he want to hold Tango and Cash close and let them lick his face? <laughs> 
and feed them and call them loving names? Like, I don't know well, what he wants. I guess the the mice are the two best mice and they're the two best cops. This is so. one of the worst movie villain hero dynamics ever because they don't know who he is. He could just kill them, but he doesn't want to because the movie needs to happen, right? Mm. He never really gets to meet them. They just shoot him in the face. And again, Kurt Russell shoots him in the face. Did he do it with a shoe gun? I can't remember. He does shoot him in the he face. He used a gun, yeah. And... And it's like, okay, they just shot the old man, the elderly man in the face. And it's like, you don't know who he is. You don't know, like, you don't know or care. I think that's the main thing. Care. I don't care about Jack's plan. I don't don't care (laughs) about how Jack runs these other criminals who are far more competent than him. I don't give a shit. Every time we cut back to Jack and his fucking mice and and these great character actors standing around twiddling their thumbs, I was like, what is this? Am I watching a fucking straight to DVD mystery box movie? Like what the Am I watching Mr. Scarface I'm again? Li- I'm literally about to bring up Mr. Scarface. You know, at least this film killed the main villain last. <laughs> well, yeah. There wasn't like half an hour of just fighting random nameless mooks. No, but at the same time, we don't give a shit about the main villain in this. The one that yeah. we gave a shit about was a ponytail guy who was supposed to be British, but he sounded Australian, but he's neither. He's an American guy. Yeah, it was like fake Cockney. They called him a limey bastard a lot. And that's how we were supposed to understand he's British. Mm-hmm. That's the guy from Blade Runner. Mm-hmm. The the one that they test at the beginning of the movie. Yeah, that happened. You remember Blade Runner? Mm-hmm. It's like, what would you do if you found a tortoise in the deserts? Um, I would turn it on its back, you know, like whatever that whole scene. Um, yeah, I was that. See, see, I just went on that tangent because what is there to say about Tango and Cash other than, hey, did you know that their lawyer is a played by an actor called Richard Fancy, whose name is Dick Fancy? But you know Richard Fancy, you've watched Seinfeld, yes? Mm-hmm. Richard Fancy is one of George Costanza's bosses. See, I'm already avoiding Tango and Cash again. Just talk about Richard Fancy. Richard Fancy was George's boss who fired him for sleeping with the cleaning woman on his desk. George was having sex with his cleaning woman on his desk. And it's the infamous, one of the best George Costanza scenes where he's just like, So George, it's come to my attention that you've been... uh, having You've been sleeping with the cleaning woman. And George, having no options available to him pleads ignorance and just says is that wrong should i have not done that because <laughs> if i knew that i wasn't supposed to do that i wouldn't have done it but it's been in other jobs it was it wasn't frowned upon at all if i knew that this was a frowned upon thing i wouldn't do it that's when i see when i was watching the courtroom scene where it's supposed to be like they're getting screwed over i was just like hey it's that character actor and i'm thinking like of all these great moments from their careers <laughs> instead of the movie because the movie's fucking dull and fucking boring and fucking generic and lame there's a moment where kurt russell and stallone are talking in the i don't know some room inside the courthouse where it has like the shiniest desk ever where you can see their oh, reflections. Yeah, one of those like conference rooms and and there was a shocking moment where Kurt Russell was just like, yeah, so my attorney said to me, I'm like, whoa, 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 you have different attorneys? Where's his attorney? We never see Kurt Russell's imaginary attorney. They always have in the courtroom, they have just Richard Fancy, who's their attorney, but they're talking about it and seeing like they have two different attorneys. What was that? I thought they mentioned in an earlier scene that, like, one of them could afford an attorney, the other couldn't, or something like that, so... Amazing! 
amazing. Still, like, <laughs> I like I struggle so much with this. I can see why my mum hates it <laughs> so very much. Is there anything you want to say about this? There is one name we haven't mentioned yet. Oh, go on. John Peters. Yes, yes. Do you want to explain for the people out there? Thank you. I almost forgot about John. He almost, he almost, he almost crawled away like a spider. Um, could you explain the the legacy of of John Peters? First of all, I'll say that when the film ended and the credits started, when I said produced by John Peters, that was something that you know put a smile on my face because I knew that it was going to be an yeah. interesting. There's going to be interesting stories about the making of this film. See, I just smile on my face because I saw his name in the opening credits. I was like. <gasps> Will there be a spider? I, I must have glazed <laughs> over it. So John Peters is a very kooky Hollywood producer who, mm. especially around this time... Was, was big. Yeah, he was producing a lot of really big films. Like Batman. Batman. Same year. Yeah, there, a lot of things late 80s, early 90s. Um, he started off as a hairdresser who really became famous when he worked with Barbara Streisand. And I think he's her husband. Whether he's her husband or not, he worked with her a lot after the hairdressing thing, and that kind of boosted his career. And yeah, he's an incredibly kooky guy. I learned about him on this podcast when we were doing Unappreciated Masterpieces. You introduced me to the world of him. Um, can't remember which film it was, but it was it was a lot of fun, and there's a lot of fun stories online you can hear from like Kevin Smith and stuff talking about working with him. And yeah, he's a guy who seems to always have... The craziest ideas craziest for what ideas. movies should have in Just, them. He really wants to put things he thinks of in ideas. Like, there was a story someone told uh, with this film that he got stuck in traffic once and was, like, looking at a construction site, and he said, I want to have big vehicles in my movie, and that was the climax of this film. <laughs> I'm pretty sure here's the reason Prince did the music to Batman. He might be, yeah. I'm pretty sure he was like, you know who would do a great song for Batman? Prince. <laughs> Which is fucking crazy. I'm pretty sure he's the guy. He's a guy who's like a hairdresser who got to now produce movies. So it's like these crazy ideas where it's like, you know what I always liked? Spiders. I watched King Kong when I was a kid and there was always a giant spider in that movie. <laughs> and I think you should put a spider in the movie. Yeah, he wanted somehow super- put spiders. He wanted in Superman it. to fight a giant spider at the end of a movie that was being, you know, thought about. And then he didn't do that, so at the end of Wild Wild West there's a giant mechanical spider. And it's like he finally got his spider. And Every movie you see with John Peter's name attached to it, there's always a piece of trivia where it's like some crazy thing that's in that movie came about because John Peter's just said, I want it, put it in there. Yeah. And in this movie, <laughs> yeah, there was he, wanted, a- he wanted giant vehicles riding around, so they put him in at the end. Damned if it makes any fucking sense. Damned if they use them well, yeah, they're the- in there. And there was a lot of talk about how they picked this Russian director guy who really mm. wanted to make a kind of serious story with, you know, actually focusing on the plot. Someone who makes real films. Yeah, and John Peters was just like, no, I want this to be a spoof of, you know, buddy cop films. Spoof. Real good choice, John. It doesn't come across like a spoof. It just is one. Yeah. Ah, oh, yeah, thank you for mentioning him. I almost forgot about the legacy of John Peters, who I don't know if he's still kicking around today producing shit. I know he's still around, or last I remember, because there's, there's a documentary about the Tim Burton Superman movie that never got made. Oh, okay. And they interview John Peters, and he talks about his perspective on it from a very business analytic perspective, where he's just like, look, it makes total sense. And the thing is, we're talking a lot of shit about John Peters. 
the guy knows the biz, weirdly. Like, he both knows it and is very immature about it. Well, he's from the streets, Ryan. <laughs> oh, you want to explain that? <laughs> John Peters says that he is from the streets when he lives in what Kevin Smith described as Wayne Manor in the middle of the forest or something. Uh, he he related to see he related to Kevin Smith as a writer and they both relate to Superman as a character because all of them are from the streets yeah. which is crazy um I, I remember last he didn't want Superman to fly in his Superman oh movie. yeah he didn't he didn't want the costume either. he didn't want the costume he because it was, it was too it was too uh, f word that's homophobic <laughs> coming from faggy from <laughs> I mean, technically he got that dream too. The TV show Smallville didn't have the right... They had the rights to use Superman, but they had all these restrictions, and one of them was he can't fly. <laughs> so in the very final episode of Smallville, he flies. So in a way, John Peters kind of got what he wanted. Hmm. In a weird, tangential way, he got what he wanted with Superman, where you have a Superman who can't fly. I think in the news last year, there was a thing that like he got married and then divorced like two weeks later. Or something. <laughs> He's a marvelous man. <laughs> he just seems crazy. I think that's it for Tango and Cash. It's just trash. This, like, tango and trash. Tango and trash. <laughs> Roger Ebert described it as a waste of electricity, which is an amazing quotation <laughs> to say about it, isn't it? It's, it's just... Could you imagine if they made more of these? Could you imagine the Tango and Cash cinematic universe or the TCU? You know... Uh, uh, or we, TCCU. We, we talk about trivia a lot, and we don't know how much of it is true, but one of the bits of trivia I read was that apparently... Stallone in 2019 had a script for the sequel and he's trying to get it made. I don't know if that's true Man, or not. Man, I'd but... love it if Kurt Russell was in it, but he's still got his big beard <laughs> that he's still kept from the Hateful Eight <laughs> and all of that. Um, far out this was. Thanks, Paul, for the recommendation. <laughs> it was steaming hot garbage. Um, this was one that I walked in being like, how's this going to go? Badly. <laughs> Poorly... Let's keep talking about fun character actors that were in this movie. Like, that's what the episode turned into. It's like, hey, did you notice that this guy was in the movie? No, I didn't notice that Dick Fancy was in the movie. He was George's boss. That was the episode. Bartek, you have a recommendation for next week, though. Mm -hmm. What is the film you are slinging our way? This is another one where we're going to be talking about comedy. Um, Ooh, it's... Schindler's List. <laughs> yes, very funny. Uh, that was also in Seinfeld. Yeah. Um, no, this is one that you have expressed that you would like to one day revisit after after a particular video you watched where mm. you found newfound appreciation of it. And I said, uh, don't worry, I'll pick it at some don't point. Don't worry. Weirdly enough, I was hanging out at a friend's place last night. Oh, yeah? And the conversation about this film that you're going to mention is coming up. And I said out loud... I feel like Bartek is going to recommend this movie soon. I feel it in my bones. And you, and after the recording's done, you can verify with Rachel that I said this. So what's the film? It's exactly what we're thinking of, right? We are doing Freddy Got Fingered. Fuck. <laughs> Fuck, Freddy Got Fingered. The masterpiece or piece of trash? The experiment in comedy. It's something in comedy whether it's a comedy according to roger ebert didn't roger ebert famously say like e in a decade's time i could see this being considered a surrealist masterpiece but never ever will it be considered funny <laughs> something along those lines yeah there, there are three things i remember him saying there was that one there was when he was reviewing it on the show he said our next film was freddy got fingered i am not gonna even <laughs> dignify this film with a review and just moved on <laughs> and then he reviewed some other film not too long after where it was boring where yeah, it was yeah. boring 
Ring, he, he related that Freddy got fingered, but he said, at least Freddy got fingered is memorable. I will always remember Freddy got fingered. And that is something we could talk about next week of the debate. I, I've had this debate many times. I think we've had it, which is, and this isn't saying that we're going to say Freddy got fingered is a bad movie. Well, that's for next week. But it's in this relationship to movies that are terrible that you don't like. Which are worse? Movies that make you actively, like, hate-filled and angry or whatever, like Roger Ebert felt with Freddy Got Fingered, or movies that leave you apathetic? Mm. Which are worse pieces of media? The ones that leave you with negative feelings or ones that leave you with no feelings at all? Because to me, as I've gotten older, I think the ones that leave me with no feeling at all are the ones I consider to be the worst option. Because Tango and Cash, I'm, you know, I have to put up a lot of energy to even say that it's trash because it left me very apathetic when we watched it. I was just like, okay, tired and boring and like a waste of electricity. Mm-hmm. Um, at least with shit like Batman v Superman, I'll remember it. It was boring, but I'll remember it. I'll forever remember the rock stacking scene <laughs> to the end of days. But will I remember anything from Tango and Cash this time next week? Probably not. Probably yeah, not. Maybe not. Like, you know, that's the kind of thing. But uh, good choice. Freddy Got Fingered from 2001, I think. I think it is 2001. I think it was a post-9-11 movie. <laughs> post or at the time. I think it came out just after 9-11. I think that was also one of Ebert's major thing. I can't remember... I know he hated Zoolander, but I think he had a whole slew of movies. He was like, this is offensive after 9-11. It's like, well, that's not their fault. It's not like they made it (laughs) like last week and then the towers crashed and then they were like, we should still release it. Like, it's not their fault. It's not Ben Stiller's fault that Zoolander came out after 9-11, all right? Leave him alone. Yeah. Leave Ben alone. Look, if it's any consolation to anyone who's upset about movies being released or made around the time of 9-11... The people on the set of Master of Disguise had a very <laughs> solemn moment because they were doing a scene while they The turtle film. club scene. Yes. Um, <laughs> let's not forget that another moment of 9-11 greatness is the fact that Max Keeble's big move was set during 9-11, wasn't it? Like, one of the one of the days in the interim of the timeline <laughs> was like, it was set during September 2001. Uh, like September eighth, two thousand one to September fourteenth, two thousand and one, and yet at no point during that adventure, we mentioned this in that episode. At no point during that adventure did they ever mention. Oh, by the way, the twin towers <laughs> fucking collapse. Well, they were really upset about Max moving, and you know that whole plot about the zoo next maybe, door. Maybe that was the twist that I guess Alan was saying that there wasn't <laughs> that movie that we couldn't figure out while watching it. Oh, well, that's it from us. You can find us on the social medias of Facebook and Twitter, Spit and Polish Presents. We have our email, which is... Our email is spitandpolished at gmail.com. And you can rate and review us on whatever podcast hosting platform allows you to do so. It would be greatly appreciated. Any feedback is cool, and especially recommendations. Uh, Yeah, recommend stuff to us. You can do it through that email, through the social medias. All of this is in the description. Uh, Tom Green, if you're listening, we'd love to have you on next week and, and hear about the Tom Green cut of Freddy Got Fingered, in which the fingering part of Freddy Got Fingered makes more sense, but mm. whatever. Uh, Vartek, the only way to end this episode, I guess, is to ask if uh, Daddy would like some sausage. <laughs> 
if you if anyone listening to this goes back to our episode on Meet Dave, our guest there, Reese and Ryan, had a very short conversation about Freddy Got Fingered. At that point, I'd never seen the film and I didn't really know much about it. Should I... we get Reese on for Freddy Got Fingered? <laughs> you know what? Maybe Torture I'll ask... him again. You know what? I'll actually ask him. Well, hold on, listeners, in case <laughs> I guess if we have a guess for Freddy Got Fingered, that isn't Tom Green. <laughs> Uh, alright, let's get out of here and get some sausages, Daddy.